Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and we're here for another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, I'm joined by Dr. William Packard. Bill is a practicing psychotherapist who deals extensively with the topic of neurodiverse and the criminal justice system. Dr. William Packard is the author of Intellectual Disability and the Criminal Justice System. Hello, Bill. Hey, Hacky. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's good to see you. You know, I'm so excited to be discussing different brains from the aspect of the criminal justice system because there's so many different facets of this coming to light nowadays, and you're one of the world's experts. So uh, introduce yourself to our audience here at Different Brains. Okay. Well, I'm not going to consider myself an expert. I don't do trial expert testimony, but I have had a lengthy career working with folks in disabilities, uh, mostly developmental disabilities, which has led me into uh, becoming involved with the criminal justice system. So uh, after a 30-some year career, I was changing chapters. I'm also, a, as you said, a psychotherapist and um, wanted to semi-retire, whatever that means. And uh, so just the culmination of a long career um, with a lot of interactions with law enforcement, criminal justice officials, and um, the penal institutions, I decided to write a book. Um, and so I would call myself a researcher, but mostly I'm a practitioner and I'm involved in uh, community collaboratives, which aim to keep people um, safe um, keep people from entering the criminal justice system and uh, when necessary to intercept them at various junctures and keep them from penetrating further. So I'm hoping to share more of a community model um, that I've been involved with for the last 15 years. So expert, not sure I'm an expert, but I, I guess I know a lot. Well, you're a modest guy. Now, what I like about what you just said, Bill, is that it's not mutually exclusive. We can protect the community. We can do good for the community. We can intercept. We can help the people who may stray and go, a, go afoul a little bit, if I'm hearing you say that. Also. Exactly. It's a win-win for everyone, Hacky. The, you know, the police are thankful, the courts who haven't really known what to do. It's not that they just wanted to prosecute, they just haven't known. Uh, there's problems with identification, lack of screening. They're just a host of problems. But when different organizations come together and work together, uh, the job can get done. Let's talk about, from your point of view, in the community, the first stage I'm talking in extreme is the prevention, the prevention. From your right. point of view, how do we prevent having everybody end up incarcerated? 
Well, there's a lot of uh, good programs happening in a lot of school systems. The D.A.R.E. program that community police come in, that's mostly drug related. Um, prevention, think early, earlier the better. Um, I like the examples of the boys club, girls club, having activities so that there's not too much um, free time. There's a big problem uh, in the what we call the transitioning period from high school to young adulthood when, you know, pretty much it's been my experience here in Massachusetts that the services are pretty good. There's a lot of inclusion, a lot of activities, a lot of structured um, activities in the high schools. Um, and then when people become 18 or 21, whenever they leave high school, uh, the activities just completely stop. There's like this gap between the services. So your question, you know, what's the best prevention? Well, you know, lots of uh, recognition that people might be having a difficult time. Um, communication with families, uh, churches, temples, um, a host of things that where the community needs to come together. Basically, there are a lot of people, who, this is the people that I work with having called the hidden population or the invisible population, meaning that they look uh, just like anyone else, and they have um, special challenges, Just and they have the same vulnerabilities that other people who end up in the criminal justice system have, except that they have more difficulties dealing with these challenges. So any way that people can be recognized as, as having a special need, um, maybe needing extra attention, maybe needing um, to be uh, help to have some group belonging, have a sense of belonging, um, anything we can do to help people, unvocational help. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but... No, you are, because now we'll get into the intellectually uh, disabled, mm -hmm. or those with intellectual disability, or those with unique talents. How do they fit in to, let's call it your model. We're talking about the Bill Packard model. Now, we ideally, I guess one thing we have to do is have law enforcement be able to recognize those whose brains are a little bit different. Would that be a fair statement? Yes, but we can't just um, saddle law enforcement to do that. We need to reach out to law enforcement. Those of us who work with people who uh, have challenges in a way that's uh, helpful not to identify somebody as, you know, um, a potential perpetrator or, you know, somebody who's engaging in petty crimes, but to work informally with community police. Um, and it really comes down to uh, sharing commun communication, sharing information. I know there's a lot of serious misunderstandings about sharing such information, but there's with HIPAA, but there's it really doesn't um, preclude sharing information with law enforcement and court officials, not to prosecute, but to help educate people on uh, positive options and to you know avoid the negative. Well, I mean, if I'm a policeman, I right. want to at least know 
what some of the hallmarks are of, let's just pick out autism and Asperger's, okay? Right. Right. So that So that I can have some kind of recognition factor. If I'm going to, if I get a call and have to deal with somebody whose brain might be a little bit different, I want to be able to recognize some of the hallmarks a bit so okay. that I don't misjudge them or take inappropriate action. One of the things I do, Hacky, is I'm I, uh, a co-founder and an active participant in an organization called Community Crisis Intervention Team. And on the team, there's a, a number of police, uh, court officials, uh, clinicians, um, educators, administrators. And one of the things we do is we conduct uh, twice a year, three-day trainings for police, not specifically. This is taken after another model that many people have heard of, uh, crisis intervention team, which came out of Memphis in the early 90s um, as a result of an unfortunate shooting of a mentally ill man um, that police didn't know was experiencing hallucinations. So we have taken our model and um, uh, it's similar to the CIT model, a crisis intervention, but we've added community because um, we need to foster, not only teach police officers um, the signs and symptoms of mental illness and developmental disability and um, neurodiverse, you know, folks and how they might present, whether it's spectrum or, you know, we, we have a three-day training. I do the component on mental health, mental illness, and developmental disabilities. Um, that includes spectrum and um, Asperger's. There's a lot of training specifically on Asperger's or spectrum folks uh, for police, but we have a more kind of eclectic approach. So part of it is training. Part of it is reaching out. The trainings are completely free. Uh, the evaluations we get from the police are, are fantastic. We very importantly include other types of professionals in the classes so the police actually start meeting people in their own communities, therapists, um, substance abuse clinicians, um, court officials, pastors, uh, citizens of all sorts. I'm forgetting tons and tons of people. Um, and the whole idea is not just to, uh, is obviously to help, you know, this is the problem. I didn't know what you have, know what you're working with, know what you're seeing. It may appear criminal, but it may be uh, a mental health disturbance or could be related to somebody's, another type of disability. We call that criminalization, criminalizing. Um, where it's not, it's an offensive behavior. It's not a criminal offense. So we teach that. We teach some of the hallmark characteristics of somebody with a developmental disability, for example, how they might identify them. And importantly, we give them the resources and the numbers to call when they're interacting with folks on the street. Um, I had mentioned that we like to include a host of professionals in these classes so people start talking to one another. You know, we first use the concept networking, where, you know, we're trying to develop a network of collaterals and professionals who can um, 
we realize the term networking is not sufficient. Partnering is the word we use now. So these three-day trainings, for example, there's the primary goal is to help identification, help know what resources are available, and when possible to use diversion from the criminal justice system. Um, just as important is, is the establishing relationships that people can actually use in their jobs. And I, I guess just to, you know, police don't really like to sit down for three days at a time. So we, we do mix it up. We use exercises. We have a field trip. We have a, a segment on auditory hallucinations where the police actually wear headphones of somebody having hallucin auditory hallucinations and we have them go through several tasks um, so that they can have a greater empathy or appreciation. Um, I've been trying to come up with something similar for someone, um, say with Asperger's, uh, so that you know they can try to have the experience of being in their shoes. One thing that comes out of these, uh, these trainings is that everybody is psyched. You know, people leave with each other's numbers. And uh, I think I'm forgetting the actual question. Um, but no, you, this is this is all this is all good. This is the way you do it. You get everybody involved. You get everybody talking to each other. Yes. You get the uh, law enforcement involved with other community people there. And, you know, familiarity and understanding makes things a lot safer and better all around. That's right. What are some of the issues that you've seen arise when the neurodiverse individual comes in contact with the criminal justice system? If I have time to give a, a short history of how I got involved, I think it might explain some of the uh, uh, things that I've noticed and come aware of. I started in 78, 1978 at a state school for developmentally disabled adults and it was a time of deinstitutionalization. Um, and there were lots of uh, people who had been secluded from society were by, by reason of court mandates and court decrees uh, were literally being forced back into the community. The same thing happened with um, mentally ill patients at state hospitals throughout the country. So, um, most of the infractions, so so we actually, you know, saw what was actually coming, the evolution of, of the community crisis intervention team actually started when the police started calling me and and having me come to the front gate to retrieve somebody that had um, shoplifted or had a inter negative interaction with a store clerk or, or just, you know, said something inappropriate and there was a complaint and the, um, I'm, maybe I'm going too much into this, the, um, you know, the police basically said, look, you know, you guys have to teach these people or you need to have somebody with them. So that wasn't happening. Um, so I actually made some calls, called, it first called the police chief he was sympathetic, but he said, talk to the probation chief, talk to him, uh, who sent me to the local judge, uh, who sent me to uh, a man who was working at the Mass Bar Association, Alex Muskella, 
Alex and I developed an educational forum, almost like a mock trial, to uh, be used to stay out of the legal system, but to try to impart a knowledge and appreciation of consequences for these individuals. And well, we had a meeting finally with, with our local officials, and it was a no-go. You know, the public defenders woman said we were violating people's rights just by virtue of being in the same room with law enforcement. So long way of getting to your um, question, I later took a job as a community psychologist and was amazed at the other end out in the community how many people in my caseload were actually involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, some were adjudicated, some were awaiting trials, some were in detention, some were uh, serving lengthy prison sentences. One thing that was common amongst all of them is that they were naive offenders. Many of them were naive offenders. Many of them really didn't know what they were getting involved in. Many of them, and some of the characteristics of somebody with developmental disabilities is you're maybe a little gullible, easily manipulated, searching for a sense of belonging, highly suggestible. Um, you tend to acquiesce to what others tell you or try to give them the right answer. You'll do anything for um, acceptance. So there's what I call a uh, perfect storm that can happen. You started the uh, interview by talking about, you know, um, older, say older adolescents who, you know, hopefully we can channel in the right directions and help with employment and so forth. Um, but these individuals um, are basically easily led. The, biggest problems I saw when I was in the community and uh, and definitely when I was researching for my uh, book was that uh, the same they're not on a equal playing field as anyone else so let's say the police you know are called to a certain location and there's this guy that's uh, looks like he's in a, you know showing inappropriate affect and behavior, and he's just you know they ask him some questions, and he looks like he's uh, copying this attitude and saying I don't know, I don't know. Well, actually, he doesn't want to let on that he really doesn't know what's going on, and um, you know he is in over his head, and maybe somebody has asked him to stand there and be a patsy and watch watch out for them, or um, quite often these people are the people that are left holding the bag, so to speak. They're the first to, last to leave the scene of a crime, first to confess, uh, and most likely to be prosecuted. And that speaks to their executive functioning problems and uh, lack of knowledge and experience. So, I mean, I could go on and on explaining some of the traits and characteristics, um, of which there are many, which make this uh, a serious problem. The most serious problem is the more, deeper you get into the criminal justice system, the more obviously the more serious the matter. So even uh, on a police interview, because of problems with memory and uh, the tendency to acquiesce and, and definitely police who use the read a technique in terms of interrogating people, um, you know, good cop, bad cop, um, listen, just, you know, you know, just help us out. We know you did it. Just tell us and we'll let you go. You know, we can help you if you're honest with us. 
those type of, uh, although, you know, a good thing for your common criminal when the police are trying to interrogate, it's just totally, totally counterindicated with our folks. Uh, there's an excellent uh, Netflix um, documentary, uh, Making of a Murderer, where, um, which exemplifies this. Uh, so I would, I would ask everyone to, to watch that. You would definitely understand all the negative, all the terrible things that can happen, the travesties of justice, and specifically a young man, Brendan Daisies, uh, the full police interrogation of a man who's probably functioning with an IQ of 50, 55, um, totally being misled and, you know, and uh, now he's serving a lengthy prison sentence. And it's pretty clear he had nothing to do with it. There are many examples of this. Do you have a guess as to what percentage of the incarcerated population, the people in jails and prisons, what percentage of them might have neurodiverse or different brains, whatever the labels might be, if you add them all up? Well, it's, to the best of my knowledge, it's way over 50% if you really, if your sampling is inclusive. So for, say, for intellectually disabled folks, there's 2 to 3% of the population. Um, the best estimates in the criminal, in the penal system, uh, people being held not just um, for trial, but serving uh, prison sentences, uh, the estimates are around 10 to 12%. However, there's this whole other area of non-identified people. Those are people that we know about people who have marginal, or we used to call it borderline intelligence, um, just for the sake of, of coming up with some numbers, say from 70 to 85, IQ 70 to 85, if you added them to the group of incarcerated, you're jumping up to um, 35 to 40%. If you add people with higher intelligence still, but learning, disabilities. And I would add to that list people with Asperger's um, and, you know, together with that, any type of learning challenge or disability, it's way in excess of um, 50%. If we're dealing with roughly half of the whole prison population who were, have different brains neurodiverse, if you add all up all the different labels. Um, and we, we take the position that I think the statistic for the percent of prisoners who actually get back out in society, I think it's uh, something like 95 percent, something like that, at some right. point. They're coming back to the same communities that they left, and quite often they're coming back better criminals. I mean, I'm sure everybody's aware of some recent legislation, uh, efforts to support uh, treatment over incarceration, or or at least to minimize, you know, nonviolent un, un, um, felony incarcerations. So basically, but for somebody with um, issues, 
and and with a need to try to fit in and pass as a normal inmate, they're very unlikely to accept any type of rehabilitation that's there for for fear of looking and showing their um, deficits and and. Um, and being stigmatized and taken and being, advantage of. Exactly. Now let's move to the staff. What percentage of the staff would you say, because we all know in, in the general population at any place of work, X percent are going to be a little bit different. Again, whether it's ADHD, whether it's Asperger's, whatever you want to call it, is it, in your opinion, higher or lower than the general population, or just give a guesstimate of what percentage of the staff do you think might be on the spectrum? It would be a, a huge guesstimate. <laughs> it, um, it's, 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 I really couldn't. What, what would you say? What, what's your experience been? My experience in regular life, mm -hmm. as I look around my office here, I don't know how I would have been labeled. I got expelled once in the first grade, once in the 10th grade. <laughs> I can't seem to focus on very much. But I'm, I'm going to guesstimate in today's world, we're looking at a, a good solid, a good solid 5%. I would say one out of 20 people has a really meaningful label of some kind if, if they were to be diagnosed and everything. You see, I would have been up in the 30 to 40%. That's why I, so I, it's, I guess it's really how we define. It's how you define it. Because I believe if you add up all of the different types of, quote, labels or neurodiversities, that the so-called neurotypical is in the minority, in the general population. I don't have statistical proof of that. And again, it depends on how you define it. But I would imagine it would be very safe to say between, very conservative to say between 5 and 30 percent of the correctional guard staff has something, okay? Definitely uh, there's a lot of substance abuse problems. There's obviously some characterological problems of some officers. Some, some are fantastic. Uh, but there's this uh, a certain mentality that can be pervasive. There, you know, there's this huge um, debate today about, you know, where, where you know, with the um, private um, prison systems and the money-making prison systems, they call it the industry. The penal industry—it's like a, a money-making thing. The, not to get political, but but there's a huge over-reliance on prisons, and you know you hear about it with the drug-related, nonviolent charges uh, today. And fortunately, there's less and less of that. There, people do better when they're in smaller environments, and uh, it's more geared towards—it's tailored to their own personal abilities and needs. Uh, so somebody neurodiverse, uh, uh, somebody who's challenged in any way, mentally or emotionally, um, they really, I'm being opinionated, but they really aren't going to do well and, and are probably going to come out of prison a lot worse. 
So there are alternatives. There is um, community treatment centers in the same communities the individuals will come back to where their families are, um, where they can be transitioned and, you know, back into a more, hopefully more successful life. Um, I don't know, I'm not here to make uh, any negative statements about um, correctional officers. There are wonderful correctional officers. There are wonderful police. There's, <laughs> there are mostly people want to do a good job. There are always bad apples. Well, um, there's bad apples in uh, doctors, I'm an MD, there's bad apples in anything. But if we look at this another way for a minute, sure. let's say you and I go, we get a meeting with a very large, successful, money-making private prison system, and we get to their leadership, and Bill Packard and Hacky Reitman walk in, and we say to them, look, guess what? If you embrace neurodiversity and recognize it, and you let us come in and train your staff and the inmates, you're going to make more money. You're going to get good press. You're going to be in compliance with the newly emerging EEOC laws on neurodiversity and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you'll be doing the right thing, but don't do it for that reason. Do it to make more money. Let us come in and show you how we can do that. Is that possible to do? It's a novel idea, and I'm all for it. Um, show me the way. If we maximize everybody's potential, whether they're a guard or a, any kind of staff in a prison, and the prisoners themselves to be more productive and more independent, if you will, in a positive fashion, and more lined up for what happens when you get out of prison. Um, right, which is important. Very important, because they're all going to get out. <laughs> the recidivism rate is, is you know, it's, it's terrible for a lot of the folks we work with. So I would even prioritize starting with people who are most vulnerable and most um, um, not on a fair playing field, as it were, you know, coming out of prison and try to, you know, you come out of prison, you have a felony charge, it's hard to get a job. Start with people who are most down on their, uh, on their luck and are having the hardest time, you know, reintegrating into society. I would, I had a, you know, I was in solo practice, and then I, we, I ended up founding this kind of a huge orthopedic group back in the day, and uh, ultimately we we had like five offices in three counties, and we were acquired by a publicly traded company, and I was able to convince the suits from the corporation as as things evolved. Mm -hmm. and the doctors, and the nurses, and the staff, and the patients, all around one table, that if you treat every patient like it's your own family, the patient's happier, the doctor's happier, the staff is more fulfilled, and the suits make more money, okay? It's not, 
we, we always think things are mutually exclusive, and they're not, you know? They're, they're really not. You can figure these things out, I think, anyway. I, I think you can. It's a win-win-win. Win-win-win, and that's the way I try to look at things, because it's not a zero-sum game. If the prisoner does better and becomes a productive citizen, and the guards feel better about themselves, and the behavior overall improves, and the litigation goes down, and the fights and problems inside go down, all right, right. right. you're going to make more money. Makes more sense. Um, the only negative would be if your recidivism rate goes down, which it will, then how are you going to replace that income? And we'll move them into outpatients, so to speak. We'll there, get them yeah. moving into the halfway. There's a saying that a little money up front saves a lot of money down the road. And I think that applies here. I, I, that's very well said, Bill. It's, it's about thinking clearly the way you are in the community and getting everybody on the same side. Like you said, people come out of those meetings and they get in touch with each other. And why? They finally got exposed to each other. So that's what you do. You people need to know what limitations each other have, you know, in terms of their role, responsibilities, and and recognize that they can both be helpful to, they can be helpful to one another. Um, there are things that limits on the job that I have where somebody who's in another capacity can, um, you know, uh, make up for my job limitation and vice versa. So. Yeah, it's, it's yes, like... Yes. Yeah, we'll have like, some fun with this. We'll have some fun. They're very and good. And you certainly have devoted your, your life to this um, with your book, The Intellectual Disability and the Criminal Justice System. How do people get a hold of that book, Bill? I have sent a couple of links to the uh, Amazon.com and to CreateSpace.com. You can find it on Amazon. By the way, there's a that's the first part of the title of the book, Intellectual Disability and the Criminal Justice System. The second part is the part that's exciting, Solutions Through Collaboration, which is everything that we're talking about today. So I'd be very happy uh, for people to um, take a look at the book. And, uh, you know, it's, it's... And how do they get a hold of you, Bill? How do they get a hold of you? The uh, website for the book and the uh, there's the first chapter of the book and the clinical resources. Um, there's a pretty involved website, intellectual disability and the criminal justice system. Is it dot com or solutions through collaborations dot com? Can I make uh, one more suggestion? Absolutely. There's a great model for communities to consider if they find any relevancy to problems that they're experiencing in their community, and if they think a community collaborative approach is the way to go, uh, there's, so the, uh, the group that I'm involved in is the Taunton Community Crisis Intervention Team, and the website is http uh, forward slash slash c-c-i-t-t-a-u-t-o-n-m-a dot weebly.com um, we're always wanting to share information and we are somewhat of a clearinghouse of information 
um, and give people suggestions. You know, there is no uh, cookie cutter, you know, one fits, you know, size fits all uh, for community collaboratives. But, you know, we're committed to sharing our experiences over the last 15 years. And, and we're also always wanting to learn from other communities. So I would, you know, as much as I'd like people to visit my book website, um, I'm even more excited about people uh, thinking about a community collaborative for themselves, for their communities. Well, that's great. You know, we just interviewed one of your number one fans who's in your community up there who does right. so much. Sorry, go ahead. Who was that? You tell me who it was. Tell me that, who your number one fan up there was who we just interviewed. Oh, my number one fan? Okay, just just occurred. Uh, Mari Nosel. Absolutely. She yeah, has great. nothing but great things to say about you. Yeah. She went through she, our program, and she's she's very involved. She's amazing. She is really amazing, and she's been through a few things herself. She's been instrumental in helping me understand this is something that we're always learning, um, that the book that I wrote applies to people with Asperger's. Uh, you know, I use the term intellectual disability because that's the, the certain population I was assigned to work with as a, you know, as a psychologist, but um, never realizing that, that all the people with, you know, marginal and even up to above intelligence above average intelligence um, have the same vulnerabilities if, if they have certain traits and characteristics and the same clinical logic applies to everyone. So yes, kudos to Mari for helping me understand that it's an all-inclusive uh, topic. Bill, what training is currently available to judges, lawyers, and law enforcement officers? I'm actually part of a uh, organization. It's it's the National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability. It's out of the National Arc. Again, it's the National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability, um, using a grant from the uh, Department of Criminal Justice. I'm sorry, Department of Justice, and they are actually looking for communities who want to spearhead an approach to train. Uh, I mean, we do it on a very um, sporadic basis. Well, we're, we'll we'll get together with uh, public defenders and and try to do an in service. Or um, judges, by the way, really want to do the right thing. If and if they only had the time, and so a lot of what we're talking about preventatively will uh, unclog the the court system and allow them to do their job better. But if you go to this website, the National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability, um, you'll find a, it's a clearinghouse of trainings for just for that, for lawyers, uh, prosecutors, public defenders, judges, court officers, penal, you know, institution professionals. Um, there's a lot, and, and of course, police, the first line of, you know, who are basically Psychiatrists by default, they're they're screening everyone because they have first contact. So it's um, I think that's a very good lead in terms of finding out what is going on and and being becoming part of that particular collaborative.
That brings us to the end of a, another episode of Exploring Different Brains with Dr. Hacky Reitman here. That's me. But the guy who really knows a lot of stuff, we just heard Dr. William Packard, the author of Intellectual Disability and the Criminal Justice System. Bill, thanks again. Keep up the good work. You got it. Thank you, Hacky. We've been speaking with Dr. William Packard, the author of Intellectual Disability and the Criminal Justice System. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.